Welcome to the Blind Shots Podcast. I'm your host, David Hill, coming to you from the back left greenside bunker on the 14th hole in Mid Pines, wondering how I'm going to head out of this thing without hurting myself or anybody else. And this is Season 3, Episode 14. Today's episode is one where you and I get to listen to my friend entertain us with some stories and make us think with a few others. Matthew Wharton is one of my most cherished friends in golf. If you can say that about a friend you've never actually gotten to hug, play golf, or share a cup of coffee with in real life yet. We talk golf courses, golf industry, golf shots, and golf's future. He's a certified golf course superintendent, and in 2016 he was only the 69th individual to earn the certificate as a master greenkeeper by the British and International Golf Greenkeepers Association. He posts his thoughts on his blog titled The Greenkeeper, which you can find at carolinagreenkeeper.blogspot.com. He's a past president of the Carolina's Golf Course Superintendent Association and contributes a regular feature to Golf Course Industry Magazine under the heading America's Greenkeeper. Perhaps most notably, since 2005, he has been the superintendent at the Carolina's Golf Club in Charlotte, North Carolina, a brilliant Donald Ross course lovingly restored by Chris Spence in 2008. There's no doubt Matthew has an incredibly impressive resume. He's one of the leading turf guys in the country. But I'm not looking to hire him. To me, he's one of the most passionate people about golf that I know. He's someone I enjoy trading Twitter and text messages with about something one of us has done or seen or written about that the other has come across. We share common loves for the North Carolina Sand Hills and the taller hills of Central Appalachia and the distant lynx lands of Scotland. Basically, the conversation you're about to hear could be us on the phone at any given time. I was just smart enough to record and publish this one. For that, though, you're invited to interact with this show on Twitter at BlindShotsPod, as well as over on Instagram. Also, take a minute to find Matthew on Twitter at CGCGreenkeeper. Give him a follow. His dear daily posts of photos of Carolina Golf Club are enough to get us all through these cold, dreary winter months. A reminder that this Blind Shots podcast is sponsored by me, David Hill, in addition to Playing, talking, and writing about golf, I'm a licensed Kentucky realtor with Richter Hayden Realtors. I work with homeowners buying and selling their homes and also work with investors and businesses on their commercial property needs here in central Kentucky. You can find my contact information at davidhill.rhr.com. If you've got a real estate question, just want to know what a realtor can do for you, reach out to me and we can get a conversation started. Without further delay, here's my friend, Matthew Warden. Ten questions, and if we get through half of them, I'll be impressed with both of us. So, uh, Matthew, you are a certified golf course superintendent and a greenskeeper, uh, trained as an engineer coming out of school. Why did you choose a profession that doesn't have an, a solution to the problems? <laughs> That's a great question. Yeah, I mean, the funny thing is... Um, the, the reason I have a, a background in engineering goes back to, you know, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I got out of high school. I, I grew up not too far from you, far southwest corner of Virginia. So you could go about an hour in any direction from my grandparents' house and across the West Virginia, Kentucky, Tennessee, or North Carolina state lines. So, you know, in the foothills of Appalachians. And so I went to community college just 
because mom says you got to go to school. I'm not going to let you not go to school. And um, I took a job at a golf course, Lake Bonaventure Country Club. It was a, a nine hole private club there in Russell County, Virginia, the only golf course in Russell County, Virginia. And, uh, you know, only thing my grandparents ever wanted for me and my two first cousins was a good quality of life. And they felt pretty strongly that um, maybe engineering would, would uh, provide that and sort of encouraged me to, you know, sort of pursue that and study it. And I had a good friend from high school who was a year ahead of me. He was taking engineering at Virginia Tech. So I, I kind of fell into it, but it just didn't come easy. didn't come natural. I had to work way too hard just to make a B. And um, I worked for about three and a half years, two and a half, three and a half years at the golf course before transferring to Virginia Tech to complete the degree requirements. And then when I, I hadn't been out of school a month or so, and I went back to work at the golf course, <laughs> you know, and then uh, fast forward three plus years later, uh, I meet this woman that I've now been married to for 25 years. And, um, you know, we determined that the greenkeeping and being a golf course superintendent was going to, was going to be, uh, be my path so I went back to graduate school to, to study agronomy but um you know the funny thing is is yeah the, there are no solutions and, and and all golf course superintendents basically we're just problem solvers mm -hmm. and um I wouldn't trade for the world my and my discipline as an engineering student was industrial and systems engineering and uh you know I tell people they're like well you know well, what's that or what exactly do they do they're efficiency experts and you'll find industrial engineers in multiple facets of, of businesses and operations and, and corporations, whether it's human factors, operations, research, logistics, manufacturing. So, uh, yeah, I think there was obviously some, some framework there in the early, early days that kind of carried over. Um, and that, that's probably the truth be told. I'm, you know, I don't know if you were recording or not when we first got on here and I'm talking about this, you know, this winter weather storm they're calling for here in the next couple of days. And um, yeah, it may very well be a, a real pain in the, you know, what by the time it's over and done, but sometimes, you know, those things can be, you know, get the blood, get the juices flowing. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Yeah. Um, that's, you know, we were the mid-am co-host in 2018, and, and a week before, a week before the event, we had uh, a hurricane come through Charlotte. So, talk about talk about getting the blood, you know, the juices flowing. Wow. So, yeah, you know, sometimes it's it's dealing with those things that can uh, can be the most uh, rewarding. You know, overcoming those ad adversities. Well, that's I mean, that's golf, right? It. it it's a game that's never won. You're always playing it. Something always changes. You're always trying to, to figure out if you find something, you're trying to figure out how to keep it. And once you lose it, you're trying to get it back or find something better. Um, so did, do you think, were you a golfer before you were golf greenskeeper and golf course superintendent? Is that a big part? Of yes, I was. Okay. Yeah, I was. I, uh, I don't think I realized it until later in life, but I mean, when I look back on it, I fell in love with golf before I fell in love with greenkeeping. 
My grandfather introduced me to the game at a real young age, uh, somewhere between the ages of three and four. I still have uh, the first club he cut down and made for me, literally just right over there. I can see it from here. And uh, um, and when I first went to work at Lake Bonaventure Country Club, I was I was 19 years old, and um, the the deal was this: my my mother says. Uh, Hey, would you like a job? And I said, doing what? She said, I think running a weed eater at the golf course. And I said, what's it pay? And she's like, minimum wage, I think, which in 1988 was $3.35 an hour. And um, then she said, I think you can play all the free golf you want. And I said, well, who do I call? <laughs> you know, and <laughs> that was the hook, you know, and um Truth yeah, be told, I Matthew, mean, that was my hook too. I, I came home from the first year of college and dad was insistent I wasn't going to lay around leisurely all summer. And I'd fallen in love with golf over the previous year. So I went to one golf course. The super had already gone for the day. I drove over to the next one, said, when can you start? Because you you don't get paid much. The hours are long and tough. But, you know, if you're not asleep at the end, you can go play golf or hit balls all you want. All right. I'll see you on Monday. Oh, I'm telling you, I mean, Dave, the stories I could tell you from those days at Lake Bonaventure. I mean, I, I still remember vividly. I was, on a, I was on a fairway unit, cutting fairways. It was about, I don't know, 3, 3.30 in the afternoon. I don't remember what day of the week it was. The next thing I know, I got a blackboard pickup truck blocking my path. That's what my boss used to drive. And he's got the window down, and he's like, put that thing away. We're waiting for you at the first tee. <laughs> you know, you can finish tomorrow. I mean, talk about, uh, you know, talk, talk about how times have changed. I mean, the, 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 to think that you would just abandon in the middle of a, of a golf hole, and, you know, let's go tee it up. We'll, we'll, we'll finish mowing tomorrow. Yeah. But, but I, yeah, to, back to your question. Yeah. I, I was, I was a golfer first and, and, and um, I even in the, in the, in 1996, I took the PGA of America's um, playing abilities test a few on a few occasions because I actually was kind of contemplating whether or not that might be the direction I would go. Because the gentleman that ran the club at Lake Bonaventure, his name was Clay Evans. He was a Class A PGA professional. He was one of those throwbacks that wore all three hats. Mm -hmm. You know, he was the club manager, the club pro, and he was in charge of the golf course. But he didn't have a strong agronomic background. I, I picked up – it was it was amazing what I didn't know when I – finally went to school to study agronomy, even though I'd been working on and maintaining a golf course for, I don't know, the better part of five years or more. So was that pretty much a seagrass, mowgrass job, get some fertilizer on it at the right time? Yeah, type place. pretty much, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more. I've read it on your website, which I do enjoy when you have find the time or invent the time to or do time travel to write a little bit. Um, Tell me a little bit about Lake Bonaventure and Alex McKay, because he's got a Kentucky connection. The way I found. Yeah, he does. The way I found you, I think, was because I was looking up the courses in Louisville. You know, Louisville's got some of the oldest courses in Kentucky. And uh, the guy that designed Shawnee, uh, one of the oldest surviving of kind of the, the Olmstead Park system courses over in Louisville, which is now the first tee uh, facility. There's been a major investment in Shawnee um, down in the oldest part of the city. But Alex McKay was a. Uh, a golf pro, he's a Scott, uh, so he brought the game with him. And I think being a Scott was 
kind of a profession there in the early days of golf. If you had the accent, people were interested in, in what you had to say about golf in their golf course. So I know you've looked into him a little bit and, and you know, like Bonaventure, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So, you know, Lake Bonaventure Country Club was a, was a non-hole private club. that was, uh, it was Clinchfield Coal Company. That was the primary uh, foundation behind the, the club. It, it, it was formed as a place of recreation for uh, folks in the area, primarily that had worked for the coal company and sort of expanded out. My grandfather and, and grandmother were members uh, before I was born. And then at some point he had transferred his membership to my uncle. That's the gentleman that married my mom's sister. And they lived right next door to us uh, when I was growing up. And, um, I, you know, the funny thing about it, Dave, is the whole time I um, played there off and on as a kid. And I, like I said, I started working there when I was 19 up until, oh, shoot, I left. Well, I left for good. And. 96 I was what 28 um no one ever mentioned Alexander McKay uh no one ever talked about who designed the golf course or or anything um and when so when I went back to tech to study agronomy when I graduated I took a job up in northern Virginia at Augustine Golf Club which was uh designed by Rick Jacobson and um then from there, I got a superintendent's job across the Potomac River at Swan Point Yacht and Country Club, which is just in southern Maryland, about 50 miles south of D.C. And that was a Bob Cup design. And my wife and I would travel around that general area and play various golf courses. There's a, there's a strong public public golf scene in that, that market, at least there was over 20 years ago, um, and a, a lot of it. You know, even Augustine was kind of considered the grandfather of the upscale daily fee scene in the in the greater D.C. metro region. And, you know, look, look those, the courses we would play would always be in really great. You know, they were well conditioned, but there was just something about them that I, I don't even really know how to how to phrase it. But uh, when we came down to Charlotte for the first time in 05 and saw Carolina Golf Club, it was like I started to see all these features along the ground that kind of eerily, you know, not eerily, but just felt somewhat familiar. Yeah, there was a familiarity to it. And I was kind of like, you know, I think I've seen something like this at Bonaventure before. And, of course, you know, they're making this big deal about this Carolina Golf Club was designed by Donald Ross. And I mean, in the state of North Carolina, that's, that's, that's just a huge deal. And, I mean, I'd been, been on the job a month we were the host of the North Carolina junior boys amateur. And I remember meeting one of the parents and he's like, yeah, I understand you. You've only been here about a month. He's like, you ever work on a Don Ross golf course before? And I was like, no, sir. He goes different. Ain't it? I was like, okay. Uh, I mean, as far as I know, the tees are where the tees are supposed to be and the greens are where the greens are supposed to be. So I'm not really sure what you mean, but you know, you know, thanks. And, um, but, uh, you know, slowly my, you know, I, I got the education. I, I learned it. We were undergoing a four-phase master plan renovation with Chris Spence. And Chris was very kind to point out, you need to go here. You need to go to Mimosa Hills. You need to go to uh, uh, this course or that course and start to kind of 
Yeah. So he did that. He did the Pete die role for you. There are famous stories. He would always send his, his assistants, his shapers that, that didn't have the, the architectural background. He'd send them to Scotland or to go see, right. Like right. you need to go fill in your, your resume of knowledge. And so, well, that's good that Chris said you get, yeah, you so, a list. yeah Chris recommended, yeah, he recommended a bunch of courses in North Carolina, a lot, a lot of which he had been renovating and restoring, uh, to, to some accolades within the Don Ross society. And, um, so it got me to curious, like, well, who did Bonaventure? And uh, I had this old book by Cornish and Witten that a friend had gifted me from a long time ago. And I just I looked it up and there was the name Alexander McKay. And then you start reading his bio and turns out he had, does, he had done a couple of other courses back in that region that I had played. And then, um, yeah, he was a Scot that immigrated over. And he at one time spent about 10 years in Louisville. Mm-hmm. I believe it was. Uh, and he also spent about another decade in Knoxville, Tennessee. And, um, and he was the superintendent at uh, Holston Hills. Which is and a, so I, a me, famous and great Ross course for those that don't know. Yeah. Yeah. When you start asking people like, you know, what's the top 10 or top 20 all time Don Ross golf courses, Holston Hills is always in the, in the conversation. And so for me, it was just kind of like, okay, well, if I spent 10 years working at one of Ross's best designs and then struck out on my own, I, it only stands to reason that something's going to kind of filter in by osmosis. And so that for me was when the penny dropped on golf course architecture. And that's what started me down, down this path of just collecting books and reading up more. And, you know, the, the more I read and the more I go out and play and experience, I, I really like the old stuff and the new stuff. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's just not my thing. Well, yeah. speaking of old stuff, you are a, a Scotland lover like I am. What's something, what would you bring from over there to here, if you could, from the game or the, the business or, or the architecture? And, and I'm going to make you stick to this one too. Part two, what would you take back? What do we, what do, we do that maybe – maybe Scotland hadn't has resisted or hasn't found yet, if anything. Well, the funny thing is I'll answer part two first because, and this, this is like breaking news. It's just been out in the last 24 hours. Have you read the blog post yet by UK golf guy? Yes. Where he was talking about, Hey, when you look at all the great courses in the U S and then in the most recent top 100 list that have been undergoing these, these, um, revitalizations and restorations and they're shooting up the list with, with all these accolades, it, it kind of stands to reason that, yeah, why hasn't there been a major push to do some restoration work over there? So, so maybe that's something that they could take from us and which would be good, uh, good to see in the future uh, to answer part two first, but part one. Yeah. I've, I've been fortunate enough to be, I've been to Scotland twice. I've been over, to either the UK or Ireland for a grand total of four times, but um, I love I love the ground game. I, I uh, that's why I play with Hickory Clubs on occasion, uh, just because I just I just love the ground game, and, and which to me brings brings the architecture to life because it doesn't matter how interesting it is if all you're doing is playing aerial assault, you can just kind of ignore it. But when you're when you have to take it into account because you got to land it short and run it on or bounce it up, uh, yeah, I'd love to see more of that. You know, 
they don't, I, I like the fact that at least from my experiences, and I, and I think yours are the same from, from what we've shared together, that they don't seem to be interested in lush, verdant green. They, they just seem to be interested in good, firm ground to play proper golf. So, you know, yeah. th- there are only a handful of places that I can remember playing here where the ball it's a coin flip if the ball is going to funnel onto the green or into a bunker. So many, so many of our hazards here give you an out. They've got a strip of rough in between them or they're, they're not mowed to the fairway. You know, watching my ball, I, I went for a hero shot at Carnoustie. I was out of position. My caddy says, if we were playing in a competition, I'd put a wedge in your hand, but you're here with your guys. Here's your hybrid. Go for it. Good luck. Try not to hit it in that bunker right there. Well, you know where I hit it right in that. I was headed online for the green. It was coming around, got on the ground and just kind of swirled around and funneled right into that bunker. Took, you know, a couple of shots that I was out of the hole, but you don't, you know, you can do that at some of the tight turf down in, in the Pinehurst area, you know, mid pines, pine needles, those courses, um, up at sand Valley, kind of the similar, there's not, there's not a lot of long grass to stop it, but, um, yeah, places where you have that firm turf and just watch it on the ground. I'm with you 100%. The, the game gets really interesting once that ball gets on the ground, if it's moving. Well, you know, yeah, you know, the funny thing is, so this past fall, I, I went over to, to the Highlands of Scotland with some uh, with some other superintendents and guys in the business. And um, Tom Colombo, who's the superintendent at the Highlandsport Club, which is another old Donald Ross design right there on, on the coast of Massachusetts, um, we're playing at Royal Dornick. I don't recall off the top of my head which hole we were on. It was maybe three or four. And I just said to Tom, I was like, man, you know, the funny thing about it is this. I said, you see this? And I'm just kind of, it's just the way the, the green rises up and the contours around it. I was like, I can take you to my golf course in Charlotte, North Carolina. I was like, I've got this. I've got this. I said, but what I don't have is I don't have the ability for you to play the ball along the ground from here to there because the way the Bermuda grass grows, especially in the summer months is even though it's tolerable of, of a lower mowing height, you're never going to get it down to play like fescue along the ground. Mm -hmm. You, you will in the winter months when it goes completely dormant and it's just a desiccated dehydrated canopy. Right. But even, even then, because we're on clay, it has to be dry conditions because if you get dormant Bermuda on saturated conditions, well, that's just hideous. Yeah. It's just, that's but, uh, yeah, exactly. And so it's just, it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm telling Tom, I was like, it's, it's awesome to, I was like, I can see why Donald would be inspired by this. And then anywhere he could find an opportunity to, to replicate that look and experience, he would do it. But I said, the, the limitations we have in the U S is, our climates and our soils sometimes don't allow us to provide a similar playing characteristic, you know? Uh, and, and with you being in the transition zone, like we are, you're a, a fair bit further South. So the Bermuda probably stays awake a little bit longer down where you are, but it's, you know, the, the people in your business trying to provide a, a consistent and, you know, we could have probably a long discussion on how consistent it really needs to be. 
from different perspectives, but to, to get a consistent planned perspective and to try to be Amer provide an American green golf course, which is I'm sure part of an issue everywhere. Um, yeah, we don't have that soil. It's, we've got a, a great peat and PB die course here that has lots of movement along the ground. It's, it's all shaped. I mean, it, it looks like it's on an excite bike course and I love going out there in the winter because it's green. It's all bent grass. It's one of the last, we don't have a whole lot left Ooh. in this area that are all bent. It's bent T to green. Nice. So yeah, it's a four season golf course when there's not snow on the ground. Um, but in the summertime, they've got to absolutely drown those fairways. So as beautiful as it looks, and it looks like it's going to play, you know, there's look, they've got a little poa, a little bluegrass mixed in there. So it's actually a nice multicolor surface. Um, but they got to put so much water on it. The opposite, you know, Bermuda gets soggy and soupy in the, the winter in the summers, man, that it, it, the ball just doesn't move. It's all of a sudden my carry at 240, hope it runs out to 270 drive isn't, isn't getting it done. A uh, little, little bit different playing experience. Yeah. Uh, yeah. One, well, it, I think it's, it's our good friend, Rod Morey down, down under that. I, I think he says, you know, golf shots become most more interesting once the ball gets on the ground. Yes. Yeah. He's, yeah. he's completely sold me on that idea. Um, hoping one day to, to play on some real sand down there, uh, go shake his that hand, would be fun. him and Adrian. We need, I figure I need about a month, maybe six weeks to do that. Life's on board if we can stop in Hawaii on the way there and then the way back to, you know, kind of normalize going from the wrong side of the earth to the, the right side. Are you it. dropping her off on the way and picking her up on the way back? I, I hope not. That, that sounds more okay. expensive than taking her with me. <laughs> Probably so. Probably so. Uh, let me put this one to you. Speaking of the old world, the new world, and, and wives, why do ladies' tees persist? One, I'll set it up this way. One of, the, one of my favorite things that they've done out at Kearney Hill, which is my – my, my one of my two home courses there are no color codes on the t's there's no names it's just one through six you one's in the front six is in the back play where you want we'll adjust the handicap accordingly um you know it, is it really just ego and kind of stayed tradition that has kept us from numbering them or alphabetizing them or coming up with cool names like they did down at tobacco road You know, I'll admit I've never researched the topic. Uh, that might be a good question for for Connor Lewis. Is you know what is the origin of the term "ladies' teeth? But I'm I'm sure it probably is just a byproduct of the fact that um, you know when courses started to evolve to to have more than one set of teeth. Because I, I think if you go back to the earliest rules of golf, you were teeing off within so many club lengths of the hole. Right. So I think it was old. I think it was old Tom that finally de decided to, to create some proper team grounds. Um, uh, so I don't know exactly at what point in on the timeline of golf history we started to see forward tees appear. Um, but I'm I'm sure the term ladies just originated from the fact that that's more than likely who was using the more forward tees uh, most prevalently, and then it just kind of it just kind of stuck. And unfortunately here we are, it's the year 2022 and, and the term is still around and it just needs to go away because quite frankly, like I tell people, I mean, the T doesn't know whether you're a, a male, female, you know, old or young, it, it doesn't know who's teeing the ball up. And so, um, uh, yeah, 
and and the color red too uh, is it, it's it's funny. So I'll, I've got some cool stories on that topic. It's a you know my wife plays golf. We met on a golf course, and so I've witnessed it firsthand through the years. I, I remember one time we were on a golf trip down in Myrtle Beach. I won't mention the course's name because, quite frankly, I, I think it's closed. But we were just making small talk with the starter, you know, and uh, he, he was just like, you know, the, you'll find your tee over here, sir. And then he, he looks at my wife, and I, I think he just thought he was going to make her day. He's like, and you, you young lady, you'll be happy to know the lady's tee is way up there. And she looked at him, she says, yeah, I know, but I'm going to play from the whites. And then it was like he didn't really know how to <laughs> how to take that. It, it really threw him off for a moment. And he went, yeah, but the ladies' tees are way up there. And she says, yes, sir, I heard you, but I'm, I'm going to play from the whites. And he just – it was kind of funny. He didn't know how to take it. Um, I mean, I recall – I mean, we've, we've gotten paired up with two random guys before on, on – on public courses and we've had them quit after nine holes because they didn't like getting beat by, <laughs> by a woman. You know I mean? It's, it's just sad, but uh, um, I'll tell you another, another story. So when I first came to Carolina golf club, the tees there were red, yellow, white, and blue, four sets, red, yellow, white, and blue. And this was, this was before, uh, phase two of our renovation because this took place on the old first hole which was literally right beside the practice screen i'm changing holes on the practice screen and this this man gets out of a cart with his two two kids and he hits a tee shot from the blue tees and then i watch his young son hit a tee shot from the yellows his son looked to be about six years old after his son teed off, they went forward to the Reds where his daughter, who looked like she was probably 11 or 12, teed off. And, I mean, it infuriated me on the inside because I thought to myself, heck, your son probably either needs to be hitting from the Reds with his sister or really and truly probably needs to be up the fairway about the 150-yard marker. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you, you probably don't even think anything of it, you know, but you're instilling a subconscious chauvinistic trait into this young man. You, you just don't have, you just don't, but, um, you know, it was, it was early in my days there. To, I was still at the point where I didn't, I didn't know everybody and I, I never did speak up and, um, and something that sometimes I still regret to this day that I didn't. But I, but I do know this much. So once we closed down the golf course to undergo phase four, we were shut down for like 11 months as we redid the whole remainder of the golf course. I, I lobbied hard in all the committee meetings that I wanted green, white, blue, and black. No red. No red. No red. And then even once we and, – and that that got passed forward. That's what our T's are, green, white, blue, and black. And um, – but there were uh, – there were a, a, a significant number of senior men. I mean, these guys were north of 80 <laughs> that played like on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. 
Oh, getting them to scoot up to those green teas was like pulling teeth. It it took it took forever, but you know, and some of them have passed away since then. And and I, I guess we're probably you know a half a generation, if not a full generation, past those times. And 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 now it's it's just kind of second nature to everybody. But uh, I'll, I'll tell you another funny one too. When I was at Augustine Golf Club up in, I was in Stafford, Virginia, just north of Fredericksburg. The golf course had five sets of tees. It's, a, it's an upscale daily fee facility, five sets of tees. Gold, red, white, blue, black. Yes, I said that in the correct order. Yeah. The gold was most forward, then the red, then the white. I never, ever in two years and three months of being the assistant superintendent there, I never once saw a woman tee off from the golds. They just went instinctively to the red. Instinctively to the red. They just instinctively went to the red. We used to have a group of senior men out of Arlington, Virginia, that would come down twice a year. They'd bust down and they'd play two days in a row. They do it twice a year, about six months apart. And that was the only time of year ever we had divots on those gold teeth. <laughs> so those old, those old men were just going instinctively to the gold and the ladies that played out there instinctively went to the red. And it's like, they never noticed that there was another tee box up ahead that, that might've made life a little, little easier for them if need be. Cause there was a considerable number of forced carries on that golf course over some wetlands and stuff off the tee. You know, well, I've got a couple of follow-ups on that. Uh, one, that at Carolina Club, that first group, uh, when you recolored the, the tee boxes, did, uh, that group that moved up, did they ever admit that the game was more fun for them once they finally moved up? Did they say, why did I wait so long? Did you hear – did any of that chatter ever get back to you? Or was it just – No, not that, I, not that I recall. I mean, I, I think once they eventually moved up, they – they realized that it was for the better and it was probably one of those things like, gosh, why did we, uh, why didn't we do this sooner? But, but unfortunately, no, no one ever came to me and said, thank you or anything like that, which I, I don't think I needed any thanks, but, but you know, I never, I never got that realization in, in a verbal uh, comment. Well, you know, I most recently November was down in the, the Sand Hills area and we, we played tobacco road and a couple of my friends sort of, not duped, but they were insistent. They wanted to move up a tee box over there. Cause that can be, you know, it's not a scorecard long golf course, but it's so up and down um, that, you know, moving up a knocking 150 or 200 yards off the distance really makes a difference. So, and they got one of the, the shorter players in our group along with them and every one of them to a man said that was so much more fun than they'd ever had on, you know, on a very challenging, visually intimidating golf course that, that, that just that little bit, where they're playing, you know, they're driving the appropriate length for those holes just made, made so much more fun in, in your role and a little bit of golf that you get to see that you're not just dodging when you're out on the course ballpark guess about how many golfers in your experience play appropriate tees these days, even with all the information that's out there with all of us of the, the online community and the, the play it forward initiatives and all of that. Ballpark guess, you think, how many guys are playing where they probably should for how far they hit it and how well they hit it? 33%. I'd say two out of every three golfers are probably playing from the wrong set of tees. Yeah. If, if the scratch players are playing from the tips, they've got it right. 
Yeah. And, and you might have a handful of, of older seniors that have, have moved up to where, where they're comfortable and having fun. And, and the rest of us are still probably kidding ourselves to a, to a, to a degree one, one way or the other. Um, you know, um, that ego is powerful uh, stuff. <laughs> it is. It, it's, it's fun. Well, I mean, shoot. When, uh, when I was at, you know, when I first started at Carolina Golf Club, one of the first projects we did was, you know, what now serves as holes one and two are new holes that Chris Spence built on some adjacent land that the club had acquired. And the second hole's got a pretty significant force carry over our irrigation reservoir. And, and we had these gentlemen that were kind of watching the construction in progress. And, you know, they'd come up and they'd say things like, you know, I've been a member here for 25 years. I've always played the blue tees and now he's out there building a golf hole that I won't even be able to get across the water from the blue tee. You know, they just, they just felt like, you know, I, I've always played the blue tees. So therefore I, I'm entitled to still play the blue tees and, and I should be able to, uh, we ended up, we go, uh, when we constructed the dam for the irrigation reservoir, we, 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 we filled in a portion of the ravine where the lake is. And, and kind of created more landings on there and shortened the, the force carry just because of that kind of feedback, you know, but now the funny thing is all those folks from that era have aged significantly. And if they're still part of the club, they're all playing from tees more forward anyway. And everyone that's joined since didn't even have a clue that any of that ever took place. You know, <laughs> a, a solution, so. a solution for a problem that doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> exactly. You know, uh, when I was in graduate school studying agronomy, uh, my wife and I uh, used to play golf at a course called Round Meadow Country Club, which was in Christiansburg. Uh, unfortunately, it, it no longer exists. I think it finally closed. has been maybe sold for some housing. And it was a short course. It was only about 5,900 5, from the blues. And uh, Three sets of tees, red, white, and blue, from what I recall. But uh, we played a tournament one summer. It was a two-day event, two-person best ball. And we played one round from the tips, and we played one round from the, from the, the reds. And what was so funny was just the scoring was not that much different. <laughs> and you had all these guys that just assumed that, okay, well, now, you know, this par four – is about 225 yards or 240 yards. And they're just licking their chops thinking, oh, we're just going to drive every green and we're going to, you know, shatter the course record. And all that happened was they drive it somewhere up around the green and be so far out of position, they had no chance to get it close. And so it was just, it was just a day of making a bunch of easy pars, but they couldn't score, you know. It was uh, that was that was kind of fun to watch those uh, watch a lot of those guys eat a little crow. I've had I have a lot of similar experiences when I move up tees. It's I'm just seeing the golf course in a different way. It didn't all of a sudden get a whole lot easier. My short game is still my short game. Uh, it's one of the, I think one of the best ways to work on your short game is just go out and play from the forward tees. Yeah, yeah, uh, because you do you find yourself inside of a hundred yards on most par fours and. Uh, you you feel like oh well I, I should score and uh, it's it's not always it's, it's not easy to get it in the hole 
No. And all of a sudden you're testing your mental discipline. Am I, should I really go for that flag? Or, you know, there's a, there's a big chunk of green right there I could hit, but, but my brain says I need to score because I'm so close. So I'm going to take right. that risk that I'm not equipped to really take advantage of. Yeah. That's how that you end up with a lot of two putt pars shaking your head. I, I've yeah. been there. When you go, Matthew, when you go see a new course, whether you're on vacation or or out with uh, some greenskeepers, do you see it first as a superintendent or as a player? First as a player. Okay. Yeah, I I typically overlook anything from a maintenance standpoint when I'm seeing a golf course for the first time because I think a lot of that just for me is there's just a certain level of excitement to see it to see a new golf course or to see a newly renovated golf course. Uh, you know, I've been, I've been fortunate and blessed here in the Charlotte area. There were a, a significant number of courses nearby that have all undergone some level of renovation or restoration. And so we would always make a point to go play them just before they closed. So we'd have a frame of reference when we went back to play it after they reopened and then we could, you know, compare and contrast and, and talk about, you know, what we liked or didn't like. And, um, you know, uh, it, it's funny. I think we were talking earlier about just golf in general. And, you know, golf's like this sense of adventure. And yeah. I, I, I think there's just no greater sense of adventure than exploring, you know, a golf course for the very first time. You know, I mean, how many times have you played a golf course? And as soon as you're done, you're just like, oh, I want to go play that again because I'll, I know what I'm going to do different on, on that hole. Cause right. I really messed that up. Cause I didn't know that hazard was there or something like that. So it's a know. hundred acre adventure every time. It's, I, I love it. And you know, me, I'm a, a, almost a militant walker because you get such a different experience of seeing things, you know, you're walking right down the, well, you're walking down the side of the fairway in a lot of cases. Sometimes you get to walk down the middle of it instead of seeing it from a 90 degree right angle, twisting your head out of the cart. I, I yes. Absolutely. Now you mentioned that you are a, a hickory player. You're actually a little bit of an accomplished hickory player. Um, does do, do plain antiquated clubs occasionally? You don't do it full time, but does that does that make you a better golfer? Does that simply make you a happier golfer? Ooh, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I would love to sit here and tell you that since I started playing hickories part time, that my handicap index went down. Uh, with my modern clubs, but unfortunately that hasn't happened. Uh, but I, I do think it makes me a happier golfer. It, you know, I fell into it totally by accident and it, it was a byproduct of uh, two things. One was, you know, I think you ask any superintendent, you know, what's in their cart. Most of them's got, got a club somewhere. Uh, for me, I, for years, I carried this old six iron that I found in the, you know, in the rummage bin at, at the golf shop. And then, my wife one year for Christmas gave me a, a training aid. It's called a tour striker. I don't know if you're familiar with the tour striker. It's, I mean, it, I couldn't, it's been out a long, long time. I don't, I, I don't even know if they still make them. It's just kind of a, uh, it's just like a regulation golf club, but the face is kind of bulged at the bottom. So you really have to promote, you know, a, a forward shaft lean at impact to get the ball airborne. Okay. Otherwise, if you, if you try to sweep the ball with that kind of bulged lower portion of the club face, you'll just, you know, you'll top the ball. 
And so when she gave me that, I, I just threw it, it just lives on my cart. And, um, you know, we're, we're closed most Mondays out of the year. And so uh, late in the afternoons or something, I, I, I might throw a ball or two down and hit some shots. And I kind of got into this habit of I'll play an entire hole tee to green with just the tour striker. And so, you know, you get that nice full swing off the tee and it doesn't even matter because even if you're teeing up from the back tee, okay, well, maybe you'll get it to the beginning of the fairway or just short. So then it's another full swing. But then the next thing you know, you're somewhere like we were talking earlier about. Now all of a sudden you're inside 100 yards, and this is the only thing you got in your hand. <laughs> and you're like, well, how am I going to get this ball on the green? Well, okay, I'm going to try to hit it about 40 yards and then just let it hop and bump and run. Mm-hmm. You know, the great thing about Carolina Golf Club is every green is open from the front. Every all. Oh. I mean, all, all 18 holes, there is a, there is a way to, to run the ball onto all 18 greens. Doesn't mean it's easy. And some, some areas are more narrow than others, but it's there. So the golf course, the design of the golf course lends itself to that style of play. And so, you know, I, our, uh, our agronomy center sits right off the, the seventh fairway. So it's real easy late in the afternoon, maybe just play up seven and back down six you know, for a minute or two or something. And uh, so this, it was March of 2016, I think. Uh, It was a Saturday morning. I was home on the sofa. I think it was like the first Saturday after spring greens application, you know, so I'd slept in and was watching morning drive on golf channel. And they're in Charlie Romer was interviewing Tad Moore and he was talking about these Hickory golf clubs. And I just, I watched this little segment with, and I was kind of like, what is this they're talking about? This, you know. And then as soon as the segment ended and the show went to commercial, I grabbed my iPad and Googled Tad Moore Hickory Golf and I'm looking at this website with these, these photos of these golf clubs. And I'm just like, wow, this are, is kind of cool. They are pretty. And I just hit, yeah, very pretty. And all I did was I hit the contact button on his website and I sent him an email and told him, you know, Hey, I'm a golf course superintendent in Charlotte, North Carolina of a Don Ross design. And I saw this segment on the golf channel and I'd, I'd kind of like to learn a little more. And he called me two days later. We talked for 45 minutes. He couldn't have been nicer. And, um, yeah, he, he hooked me up with a set and, uh, I've been playing him ever since. And, uh, you know, 16, 17, 18, and 19, I, I probably only averaged seven or eight rounds a year. But the last two years, I've played closer to like, you know, 13 or 14 rounds each year. Um, and I, I absolutely just just love it. I love the ch- challenge. And, and I, I'll say that, you know, when, when people ask me what's it like, I was like, well, you know, a solid shot's just a solid. It's anything else you've ever hit but i said a squirrely shot Ooh, it's really squirrely you know <laughs> but uh you know i think we were talking about a sense of adventure when it comes to golf and um matt goggin is a is a friend of mine he he, he lives in charlotte part of the year and, and when he's there he, he'll, he'll play and practice out of carolina and i love speaking with him because i i just find him to be so cerebral and i remember uh he once did the uh, thing about golf podcast with mm-hmm. Rod. And, you know, when he, when Rod opens the podcast with that question about, well, what's the thing about golf for you, Matt? He, he goes, well, it's supposed to be hard. 
you know, and that just kind of st- stuck with me and resonated. And that's the thing about playing hickory golf. It, it's, it's more difficult because you don't have all the forgiveness of modern day equipment, but I'm here to tell you, you make a par or even a birdie with those. It's just an amazing, it's a more satisfying feeling of accomplishment. You know, don't get me wrong. I still love the pure, a Titleist T200, you know, and, and um, uh, the tuning fork is uh, from, uh, from the Tin Cup movie, but uh, the, the, the level of satisfaction is increased with, with Hickory Clubs. That is, that is something I've held off getting into, I, I think, just as a, as a time budget concern. But, you know, we've got a handful of guys here that are big into the, the persimmon and, and blade era clubs. And then Louisville mm-hmm. Golf which, you know, makes basically re kind of new versions of those old clubs and they're, they're beautiful and they've got such a a big following. Their stuff is super respected. Um, So it's one of my, one of my members, Brian Finn, his secret set is from Louisville golf. It's a gorgeous set of clubs. It's like, I've got temptation all around me. Eventually it's going to get me. It's just a matter of how long I can hold off before I I give up the dream of being a a great modern uh, golf player. Let me put this one to you. You mentioned that you've gotten to play a little bit more the last two years. Golf has undoubtedly experienced quite a, a boom, a little bit of a renaissance here because people had time on their hands, need to get outside. Are, is golf in a good place in 2022? Are, are golf courses in this country in a good place? You know, the, the flip side of that a lot of people don't think about is the labor shortage is hitting your industry, especially hard uh, among others, but, you know, you, you have, you are involved in things that give you kind of access into industry wide things through the superintendents association. I know you have saw a picture of you when I was researching, getting ready for tonight with uh, the, we are golf people. Um, you know, the, the national golf body, national golf initiative, but so I'll put it to you is golf in a good place or we, we got a little bit of, of, is there nervousness behind all this good news of like, I think the answer is we are in a good place, uh, but we do have some challenges ahead. Uh, you know, the funny thing about this labor situation is we've had an issue with labor for several years now. It's just that it's kind of sort of uh, gone through a bit of a metamorphosis. Going back to uh, 2018 and 2019, you could get bodies to come through the door. They just didn't stick it out for very long. I mean, heck, I had a guy quit after four hours one day. Um, You know, they might last two weeks. They might last two months. Uh, And then the worst part about it was, was like when they decided that they were going to quit, they just quit. They didn't even tell you they were going to quit. The the concept of giving a two-week notice is just foreign to uh, these individuals. And once they quit, they ghost you. So, now they don't answer your phone call and they don't respond to text, right? They just ghost you. Well, so yeah, you know, two or three years ago, they would reply to ads. They'd come in, they'd show up, and then for whatever reason or another, they didn't like it. It wasn't their cup of tea, and they just they would quit on you. Now they won't even reply to the ads. You can't get anybody to come through the door to even determine whether or not you want to give them a shot or or if you think they're a right fit. So the so the labor 
crunch is is really a, a, a big issue. But yeah, it's not just our industry; it's a lot of others. Um, costs are going up. You know, the cost of doing business is going up. The cost of goods and services, delivery costs are going up because of the you know fuel costs more. So therefore, your delivery and freight charges are going up. Um, some of the raw materials uh, for fertilizer are going up. So you know, we're going to have some things to deal with in 2022 and, and possibly 23 and on that front. But having said that, more people are taking up the game, more people are, co- are coming back to the game. Um, 2020, we set a record for the number of rounds played at Carolina Golf Club. We broke 30,000 mark in 2020. And uh, one of the most amazing things about that statistic, Dave, is in the early stages of, of COVID, you know, we were fortunate in North Carolina that we never had to close down like some some other states and other parts of the country. Golf never stopped, even though lots of things did. Our clubhouse was locked. You know, the range was shut down. Basically, it was just you could show up and you could play golf. Um, and there were no carts. We took the carts away for over 40 days. And of all the months in 2020, April of 2020 was the most rounds played of any month, April of 2020. And it was, every round was on foot. Every round was on foot. You know, um, carts have come back. Uh, you know, obviously it was single rider for a long time. Uh, you know, we eventually kind of filtered back into double rider carts, but now with the Omicron variant kind of surging, I've noticed that people are kind of going back to, and if I'm going to take a cart, I'm going to ride by myself. So I'm starting to see a little more single rider carts again. Our rounds played in 2021 was down under just just a, just shy of eight percent below 2020. Uh, but if you if you compare 2021 rounds to pre-COVID numbers, it was still over 18 percent above. Yeah. So you know, I, I kind of looked at the rounds. The, the slight dip this past year, I think, is just a, a byproduct of the fact that, yeah, by the time summer rolled around, folks were able to maybe travel again. Kids kids got back into sports, yeah, you know, which, which pulled some parents away from the golf course. But overall, I mean, the last two years, we're, we're playing as much golf as, as ever. Uh, so I, I think golf is in a good spot for that, you know, uh, if we're, we're just trying to assess the health of the game and then the byproduct of that is, you know, now facilities have some, have some money, they have some capital to spend. And we're seeing a lot of renovation projects getting mentioned about on, on social media and courses are reinvesting and, and some of the stuff that's, you know, happening with uh, some public facilities. It's extremely exciting. Now, if we could just get that one particular uh, person in California to wake up, that bill is hideous and i certainly hope all our fellow golf lovers out in california can, can rally and defeat that bill yeah to, let's flesh that out a little bit you know public golf is always a lagging indicator it's never the the tip of the spear it's always the back the feathers on the back end of the arrow for whatever trend is happening uh it, you know right now the renovations which have been going on in earnest for what a decade, a little bit more in the, in the, the higher end clubs are fine. You know, they're the only ones that had money to renovate during the uh, right, right after the financial crisis. And now, you know, that work is getting spread around, but out in California, you got a bill to attack 
I guess ostensibly to, it's not even, they're not even coming at it from the environmental aspect, which is usually a big fight for golf. You know, it's got a bad reputation as, as chemical heavy and bad for the environment, but um, you know, land prices, housing prices, affordable housing are such big issues in California, especially along the coast that they've introduced a measure and you can probably speak to the details of it a little bit better than I am, but basically saying we want to look at public green space as an option to convert essentially to for affordable housing. I'm in the real estate business. That's not what happens when you open up new land and new green space to development. It doesn't come in at some artificial low floor unless the government's just going to subsidize all of it. It comes in at median market rate housing. It, the housing prices aren't going down if you add, you know, one tenth of one percent, which is what you're going to get out of a 150 acre golf course. In most communities, it's a drop in the bucket of available housing. So that stuff's not coming in for, you know, single parents, people that may need you know, anybody that's in that affordable housing space, it, it comes in at the median price, which out there are numbers in California that would blow your mind here. We just revised ours up Aver median home price in my market, Lexington, Kentucky, pretty inexpensive place to live. We're getting up close to, to two thirty. you know, that's not affordable housing under any metric, even in California, that's not affordable, but yeah, the, the bill, it, Correct me what I've gotten wrong there, because I've, I've got a rent built up on that, but I haven't refined it yet. No, I don't, I don't think you're wrong at all. And, the, you know, the funny thing about it is uh, I saw yesterday on Twitter the uh, – I'll refer to her as a representative. Yeah, assembly woman. I don't woman. really know I think exactly. it's assembly. Assembly woman. Yeah. I, I know her last name, I believe, was Garcia, if I recall correctly. But Yes, you know, she, she even went on Twitter herself and she was kind of bragging about the fact that her bill had gotten through. And then as a byproduct of that, you know, she was, she was catching a lot of backlash from, from the golf community, which, which is great. You know, that's what you need. You know, the community needs to rally together. And, um, I had, uh, I first got notice of that bill from, um, we have a guy who works with the uh, GCSAA who helps us with our uh, advocacy efforts and he had sent out an email and I saw it. And that's, that's kind of what, you know, kind of alerted me, me to it. And I, uh, I sent a text to Matt Janella and was like, Hey, you know, you need to do something about this. I was like, get, get John Ashworth on the phone. And, you know, you know, uh, Matt, Matty texted me back to say that, Hey, you know, he's on it. He's written letters. And, you know, it's, uh, yeah, they, they've got a fight on their hands out there. But, um, I also read something yesterday about, about that assembly woman. She's got aspirations to run for the house of representatives. So it may very well be that for her, this bill is just about trying to make a name and, and, um, you know, establish some level of clout or something for, for, for what else she has in mind. The thing about it is most people in politics are in it for the wrong reasons. Anyway, they're all in it for, for personal gain, not, not for the better good of the people. It's just a darn shame, but this, I'm not going to turn blind shots into a political podcast. Well, that wouldn't hurt my feelings any, but you know, I've, I've had this discussion. You, you mentioned our friend Rod down in Australia. They've been having this very fight in their front yard at Moore park over and over again. 
And it's you, the, it's like the, the people, the bureaucrats and the politicians, they think, they think it's the low hanging fruit. Like, Hey, we'll get rid of this golf course that has the perception of being for rich people. And we're going to, and we're going to give it to the, to the not rich people in the form of whatever a new will convert it to a park, convert it to housing. Well, once in rods, and Adrian both have laid out the plan very nicely. He's like, okay, you convert it from a golf course to a park. All of a sudden you have no revenue stream supporting it. It's not going to be the, it's not going to be the same condition. It's not going to be this lush green grass. It's going to be whatever native grows there. Cause you're not fertilizing it and molding the same. And then all of a sudden it's not going to be so nice. So people aren't going to enjoy the park as much. And they're going to say, well, we need houses. Nobody really uses this park. Cause it's not that nice anymore. You know, yeah. it, it's a it's a pretty easy slippery slope to see the un unintended consequences, or maybe even intended. Maybe there's malice involved. Who knows? But it's just a but, such a short sighted thing. It it drives the, me nuts. The, the funny thing that to me is this: it's like just about every politician on the planet will will always pull out the climate change card, and um, regardless of where you stand on the issue. Uh, the fact of the matter is, is that the, the climate is changing now. Uh, is it changing for the reasons that the politicians say, or is it changing for other scientific reasons? That's, you know, neither here nor there. But, but here's what you do know. We know that green spaces are producing oxygen and help lower the temperature. That we know. So... And absorb, Why is it? absorb the water that can't get oh, yeah. through impermeable surfaces like rooftops exactly. and asphalt. Absorbs, absorbs runoff, uh, filters, filters that water. There's so many good things for the environment that green space provides. So why would anybody in an urban area want to reduce the amount of green space? Because all you're going to do in an urban environment by reducing green space is change the climate even more so detrimentally. Heat that heat, you're, you're even hotter. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, um, it, it, it just kind of baffles you sometimes that, you know, uh, you just have to dig deeper because at the end of the day, it's not about trying to provide more affordable housing. It, they're about trying to provide something else, uh, you know. Or the perception of something else. Yes, exactly. Well said. I'm going to get you out. We're going to turn this around. I'm going to get you out of here on a positive note. What you mentioned, you've been overseas to to Ireland and Scotland a couple of times. You have, you have ventured out of the mountains. Uh, Your life has taken you that way. Although really you're not that far. You're, you're pretty close to central Appalachia as it is. Might be down on that Southern twinge, but golf wise, what remains unexplored territory for you? What's on your, on your wish list? Um, what do you want to see? I w- I'll say this much. I mean, uh, other than the obvious, I mean, uh, you know, I- I've had the good fortune to to go to Augusta National and attend the Masters on more than one occasion. So I- I've walked through the golf course, and yes, I would love to play it at least once in, uh, before I die. And I would I would love to go out to the Monterey Peninsula and experience Pebble Beach and Cypress Point. Um, I would love to see the golf courses in the greater Philadelphia area. And I really would like to experience the golf courses on Long Island. So that's the, that's the domestic areas that are on my wish list. 
but there's still a considerable amount of golf left to be explored in both Scotland and Ireland for me. I, I really want to get back to, to Ireland and, uh, you know, yeah, I had the good fortune to play six golf courses over there on a trip in 2019, but I've, I've not been to Tralee or Waterville or Valley Bunyan. I haven't made it to Royal County down or Royal Port Rush. I'd love to see those at some point. And then, you know, um, it's my heart's in the Highlands of, of Scotland when it's not at the old course, but um, at some point I've got to get to the Western coast of Scotland. And, uh, that's where I experienced those guys. Yeah. That that's Jim Hartzell has sold me on that a little bit. My, my, yeah. my mother has sold me on that. She makes a, she has Scottish heritage and has for my entire life headed over there every three to five years with her best friends. And they, they do the trip, right. They get a, a lot of times they get a hotel for their first night hotel for the last night and a rental car for in between and just mm. kind of go, but they're there. She wants to be her final resting place is going to, she wants to be somewhere up in the Isle of Skye up there in those West Hebrides, uh, you know, that, yeah. that, that side's on my to-do list. That I, I don't think yeah. I've seen anything like it anywhere else. No. Well, and you know, when I, when we were up in the Highlands back this past fall, they were talking about how I don't exactly know where it starts and where it ends, but they call it the North coast 500. Yes. It's like 500, 500 miles. And as they're describing to me what the North Coast 500 is, I'm listening to them and I'm like, it sounds like a, a, a hybrid of the Pacific Coast Highway meets the Blue Ridge Parkway. Yeah, That was kind of what I, it's kind of what I envisioned in my mind. And I thought to myself, man, that would be that would be cool just to to tra- traverse that at some point. You know, I think and, there's a, as far, I think there's a little bit of Appalachian trail in there too, because I, I've, I've heard either Rue McDonald or um, on his podcast, talk about that North coast 500 Grayland may have tried it one time. And there's it, the driving can get a little hairy up there. <laughs> so, so uh, Ewan Riddle, who's the course manager at Royal Dornick, it was he and his wife, Claire, that were telling me about it when we were in, in Dornick this past fall. And Ewan was talking about, there are visitors that will come over and they'll rent these high-end performance sports cars thinking they're going to take them on this North Coast 500. And he says, man, it's chock full of potholes. And it's just little one-lane narrow gravelly roads. It's not, it's not suitable for that, those types of uh, automobiles. And he says it's, it's quite humorous sometimes to see people heading that way. And you know they're just asking for trouble. Um, you know, um, they don't have SUV culture over there. They don't have, there's nobody driving, driving suburbans and Humvees along all those that roads, especially up there. That's true. Oh, I know. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'd be afraid to, I'd be afraid to figure out how to get our personal vehicle over there. Cause I don't think it'd fit on the road. No, no. Yeah. The, <laughs> so. Best decision I made for, uh, you know, I've done one Scotland trip and the best decision we made is that I wasn't going to do any driving. We weren't in a car. We were, putting ourselves at the mercy of, of others, private and public transit, just to not, not have to deal with that. And even around, you know, you get five minutes from St. Andrews, those roads, those are just farm roads. There's tractors and, and yeah. Have I ever told you my planes, trains, and automobile story? No. From Scotland. Mm-mm. So January of 2019, 
I, uh, I flew from London into Edinburgh to meet up with a friend. Um, and we, uh, we spent, we went to Carnoustie and, uh, had lunch with Craig, both the course manager and, and, and walked the golf course. And then we spent a couple of nights in St. Andrews and stuff. And then, so ultimately what we were doing was on our last day, we played the nine hole course at, at Musselboro, the, the little old, mm-hmm. old course where they've, you know, the home of Willie Park senior and Willie Park junior and Mungo and so forth. And, uh, you can play with Hickory clubs. They have, they provide them if you, if you want that experience. So, so we do that. And then we're, we're going to take the rental car or the hire car, as they like to say over there. Right. And we're just going to drive to the train station and we're going to return the car at the train station. We're going to get on the train and we're supposed to be tra- taking the train to York. And he has arranged for a driver to meet us in York and take us to Harrogate because we're supposed to be in Harrogate for the uh, bigger turf management exposition. That's what we're going over there for. And, uh, so, you know, you look it up on the phone, the distance from the Musselboro Old Course to the train station in the center of Edinburgh doesn't look like it's that many miles as the crow flies, but it was a significant number of minutes. It's about- and it just seemed like the closer we got, the city just kept getting bigger and bigger around us. He's driving, I'm navigating. We get down to the train station, and if there was a sign to indicate where you were supposed to return the hire car, we didn't see it. So we go all the way around the train station at least once before finally he just stops in the middle of the road and he's and he stops traffic and asks somebody like, you know, where's the where's the hire car return? And again, we literally have to go back around three three of the four sides to get to it and it's underground. We get underground and we're getting out of the car and we're looking at the time. We've got maybe five minutes to catch our train. And of course this young lad comes out with his clipboard. He's all about wanting to check the car to make sure everything's okay. And we're, I'm like, car's fine. It doesn't have a scratch on it. We got to go. You know, we don't, have, we don't have time for this. Just sign it. Let's go. You know, you get on the lift and the lift brings you out ground level at this parking lot. And we truck it all the way up to the deck and I'm in front and my friend John's hollering at me. And he's like, when you get in there, he's like, look at the, look at the board. He's like, look for, figure out which train it is to York. So I'm standing there staring up at the board looking for York and I don't see York anywhere. And by this time he catches up to me and he's like, which train is it? I was like, I don't see York on here anywhere. And he's like, Oh gosh. And he's floating around. I mean, he's already prepaid for these tickets online and, you know, months in advance. Mm-hmm. Right. And so he looks around and, you know, everyone's wearing red jackets, you know, that work for the railways. And so we, we grab a, we grab this guy. And we're like, "Excuse me, sir, we're on, we're on the train to York. Can you tell us which one it is?" And the guy says, "Let me see your ticket." And he and he, he you know he does his glasses and he's like, "Oh yes, yes, yes. That's, oh, you missed it." <laughs> <laughs> it's literally pulling away from the platform as he's doing this with his finger. <laughs> John's beside himself and he's just like, "What do we do now?" And uh, so. We go downstairs and we go to the main ticket office and I stand over here to the side with all of our luggage and he's up there and he's got the tickets out and he's pleading his case and he's up there for about 10 minutes or so. And then finally, next thing I know, he comes and grabs me and he says, come on, we're going. I said, where are we going? He says, 
we're going to go get on this other train and just, you know, see if we get lucky and beg and plead for our lives, so to speak. And so we go down to the platform and we go on this other train. At that point, that's when he tells me, he goes, yeah, oh, he goes, oh yeah, by the way, he goes, uh, it's the train to London. York's just a stop on the way. So we, that's why we weren't able to locate the correct train uh-huh. on, on the readout. And so we, we just get on the next train, which left 30 minutes later. Train pulls away. And um, I don't know, we'd been moving for maybe 10 or 15 minutes or so. And then, uh, the little door in the back opens and this little woman walks in with a little handheld, you know, electronic reader. And she's like, tickets, please. You know, she's scanning. She scans like a couple of people, you know, beep, little green light, beep, little green light. She comes to us and she's like, tickets, please. And John just hands her the tickets for the other, the other train. And she's like, you know, it's a red light. And she's like, why are you on the wrong train? And then he just goes into this, Oh, this the, this old poor pitiful American tourist, and he's all flustered, and he's talking real animated with his hands about how you know, well, we 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 had the hire car, but we didn't know where to, to return the hire car, and we kept circling, and he's just going into this big big production to to, to make it out like it it wasn't our fault, you know, and he's like we we didn't know it was a train to London, and we couldn't find York on the board. He's he's just going through all that, and she's kind of looking down over her glasses at him. And um, I hadn't said a word at this point. And then she kind of glances in my direction. And all I, I said was, I, I said, he's telling the truth, ma'am. I said, we, we just had issues with trying to get everything done. And, and we, we just barely missed the train. And she just then looks back at John and goes, you should have bought a new ticket. And turned her back and checked on the guy across from us. And never didn't charge us. Let us, let us get away with it. And John was so flustered at that point. He's like, I got to go get a drink. And he gets up and goes up to the bar car. And I watched her while she dealt with the gentleman across the aisle from us because he was paying on the spot. And when um, she finally finished with him, John still hadn't returned. And as as she kind of turned to make her way up the aisle, I just just said, ma'am, thank you. And she just kind of looked at me and grinned. She said, it's okay. You know, but next time you guys need to buy another ticket. <laughs> so I was, I was, I was, it was, it was, that was my planes, trains and automobiles adventure. I really did. I felt like I lived a scene in the movie. You know, I don't think you can go over there and not have an issue with the train. We had the same situation in reverse trying to get out to North Berwick from Edinburgh. Oh, I've heard it. I've heard your story on the podcast. That's a good one. Yeah. Cause train. wasn't there a fire? Yeah. We get to the station and we're looking for our train. And the Fred who can't understand that they don't have the ears for the Scott for the Scotland accent yet. And so this lady gives him the answer and she, he doesn't understand what she says. So just come lady, please come talk to my friends that they'll understand. Yeah. It turns out the train had caught on fire. Nobody was going out. Nothing was heading East out of Edinburgh that day. So we took a bus. You talk about the city, you talk about it not looking very far on the map, but it getting bigger. Well, it gets smaller, but there's a, you know, just to get to between, central edinburgh and Musselboro, our bus stopped about 120 times i mean every two blocks it just stopped just stop and let somebody <laughs> on or somebody off like the people would be looking at each other almost holding a conversation and that there'd be two bus stops between the two of them so completely understand that i'm glad they let you out of the country they didn't they didn't hold you hold your ransom for the unpaid train no, ticket. They, yeah yeah they'll get no. you next time can't wait to go there. back yeah they'll get you next can't time wait to go back. <laughs> 
Oh, exactly. They'll get us next time. And I can't wait to go back. Yeah. You know? So. Well, this will be hopefully the first of, well, actually the second of many, because I brought you in on my, my blind shots question. Uh, yeah. I, I'm petty like that. My, my friend and I got into an argument about blind shots. And so I turned it on to a whole hour long podcast episode. Well, you know, it's funny you should mention that. I remember, I remember doing that. And at the time, I was so short-sighted in my answer because I just, you know, when you asked me, all I was thinking about were shots that were like totally blind shots. Yeah. Yeah. You know, where, where, where you have to like walk up and look over the horizon, pick a target up in the air and walk back. Mm-hmm. And I never thought about those smaller little subtle blind shots or more or partially blind shots. And if I recall correctly, I think when I talked to you that morning, my wife and I were headed to play mid pines that day. I think I was talking to you outside while she was getting ready because didn't I take a few photos and text oh, yeah. you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I went, uh, you know, the fifth hole, I went for the green and two, uh, it leaked right. I was in the bunker and I get down into my bunker shot and I'm like, Holy crap. Where the green this go? This is a totally, this is a blind shot. And that was for me, the light bulb moment. I was like, I didn't even consider these types of shots when we were having our conversation. You know, by the way, I hit a great shot there and I, and I, I had a tap in birdie. boy. Hey, thanks for stopping by for this episode of the Blind Shots Podcast. Matthew is just the best. Smart, funny, curious, serious, and kind. Hope you enjoyed listening to him as much as I did. There's a link to his blog in the show notes. Do check it out sometime. Remember to head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and review for the show. Each time someone leaves a five-star rating and review for this podcast, summer gets one extra day closer to arriving. Hope you enjoyed what you heard here today, but if you didn't like what you heard, I'm sorry. I can't take it back and do anything about it now, but I will at least try to do better next time. And I hope you will join me again next time here on the Blind Shots Podcast. Until then, stay safe, be smart, and let's all hope that it's snow and not ice. As always, when you have the choice, do decide to go for it and take dead aim. Thank you for not mentioning that we spent the night, but you know, the first night after Carnoustie, we spent with no heat on in the unit. That was <laughs> that that affected Matt much more than it affected us. I think Fred. Dude, that was cold. <laughs> oh, Why is it so I, I cold looking, in is here? A, is there is there a window open somewhere? <laughs> what the hell? No wonder nobody lives here. <laughs> Damn cross breeze up there somehow. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. The, I didn't know that's why you would get the second floor, but okay. That's, that's right. Sure well, motivated you, you to. No one took the other bedroom up there. Well. <laughs> yeah, John Mark. John Mark wouldn't have said anything. He he probably would. He probably would have put the heat down that low. <laughs>